Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. We have been hoping for quite a while to talk to Hilary Mantel about Thomas Cromwell and power in the court of Henry VIII. It's not possible at the moment, but Helen Thompson and I both each just read the final volume of her magnificent trilogy about Cromwell. We are passionate about it, and we want to talk about it anyway. That's what lockdown is for. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me slash talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. Helen, we were, you in London, me in Cambridge, reading this book at roughly the same time and occasionally corresponding by text about it and to be honest about how much we both loved it there are lots of things to talk about and we'll get onto them more talking politics ish themes like the nature of power and what it means but just remind me why you love it so much well one thing is is that i've always been interested in thomas cromwell as a character as a political phenomenon and as a human phenomenon and that's probably why I started reading the, the first book, Wolf Hall, which I have to say at the time I quite liked, but didn't absolutely love. I think as it's gone on and as the country has gone on in its politics since Wolf Hall was published, I've come to love it in the end as a meditation on English history and all the things that she brings to bear about that political, spiritual moment as well. And what's incredibly powerful is the way that she weaves her interpretation of his life story into this really momentous change in what England was as a country and all the consequences that had for what became the British state and indeed what came afterwards in terms of the United States future as well. How does it get us to the United States future? <laughs> Via the fact of England becoming a Protestant country. Right. And the fact that that isn't a necessary thing that had to happen. There were paths not taken through the middle of the 16th century, but at the end of it, not under Cromwell decisively, but under Elizabeth. And that's one of the great, obviously, ironies of the story. Cromwell's religious purposes will be, or religious political purposes will be realised. England will become what is first a Protestant country and then more, I think, an Anglican country. And then both of those things will have consequences for the kind of country that the United States becomes. Let's get on to that in a second, because there's so much in that too. I'm just going to say what I love about it. And I'm not someone who had any particular interest in Cromwell before this book. I did have an interest in Hilary Mantel. I have always loved her novel about the French Revolution, A Place of Greater Safety, which does for Robespierre and Danton, which she does for Cromwell here. Like you, I think this trilogy has grown on me. I like this last one best of all, partly because I read it when I had a fever. I started reading it when I had a fever. It's a great book to read 
It really is a great book to read at this time if you're slightly unwell, because it's a slightly feverish book, and it's a it's a magical book. It's also really heavy, and I felt really weak. It was quite hard to pick it up, but that gave it all the more weight for me. But I like this one particularly because I took the first two, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, to be consistent with the BBC adaptation of Wolf Hall. I'm not sure Mark Rylance was my idea of Thomas Cromwell, but he played Cromwell as this kind of observer, someone who, through Cromwell, you got to see into the life of the court. And Cromwell was very conscious that his power and his influence depended on his powers of observation and his ability to see through things, round corners, see things other people didn't see. But in this one, it's not that Cromwell is the court. He is not the state. The state is still Henry VIII. But his power has grown and his influence has grown. And so in this book, it's like he's observing himself. It's got this extra quality to it that part of the mystery that he's trying to see through is the mystery of himself. And this one has so much overlaying accounts of his life from his childhood through to his imagination, much more in this one about what his life conceivably could be like after Henry is dead. He starts to speculate about that, the thought he might have a life after the death of the king, whereas in the previous books, his life ends when the king's life ends. He has dynastic ambitions. It transcends his own life, yet we know how it's going to end. It's going to end with his death. And she manages to, Hilary Mantel, to interleave all these things, memories of Putney and not just of his father, but of his childhood experiences, memories of Italy, what happened to him on his travels. And the nearer he gets to the end, and he's getting more and more powerful right up until the end, there's a sense in which he becomes more mysterious to himself. And I just found that completely magical. Does that tally with your reading of it or not? It does. And I think that the thing in terms of this book, which I do think it's on another level than the the other two, is the presence of ghosts. The book is just full of them. And in some sense, that was there in Wolf Hall in relation to um, Henry. It's actually there in Bringing Up the Bodies too. But what we get in The Mirror and the Light, ghosts that are just coming out of the whole of English history. So when we get to the Pilgrimage of Grace, the rebellion that starts in Lincolnshire and then spreads into the north against Henry, but a lot of it actually focused on fury at Cromwell. There's all these previous rebellions in English history. Hilary Mantel is bringing into it Jack Cage rebellion, the Peasants' Revolt. And there's a lovely bit I like near the beginning. She has Cromwell brooding on the fact that he's now effectively displaced these old aristocratic families in England. And he is thinking about, as you say, this now as a, as a dynasty, as the Cromwell dynasty. And he realises that that's a, a political problem, though I think she's also telling a story in this book about how he underestimates that political problem of the envy and hatred that he's going to inspire in somebody like the Duke of Norfolk. He tries to insist that actually the Cromwells are of an ancient lineage too, and he goes back to this idea of like Eden. And there's a passage that he, he then quotes from one of the leaders of the Peasants' Revolt, John Ball, about whether they were gentlemen or not in Eden. And it's just absolutely, I think magical is the right word, the way in which she's taking his individual life experiences, extraordinary life in which he lived and filtering so many different things 
of English history and its ghosts through his mind and tying it exactly to what's also going on politically at that moment in England. And in that story, so he is aware all the way along of the dangers that he's courting. He knows the, the point of being Cromwell is you know who your enemies are and you have a fairly good sense of what they can do to you as well as what you can do to them. And yet throughout this book, it feels more than in the other ones where he's feeling his way. Throughout this book, he's not sure. I mean, there are these great moments of doubt right up towards the end, even after his arrest, although after his arrest, he has a pretty clear idea of where this is heading. But even then, he's pulled in these two different directions. He is pulled back to his roots. He's pulled back to Putney. He's aware that his story makes no sense. It's not just remarkable. It's kind of outside the bounds of the possible. And at the same time, he's the person who's made these things possible. He's made a new England possible. And there's a conflicted quality to him in this, not sort of agonized conflict, not a huge amount of self-doubt. He's always part of what's so compelling about him is he doesn't seem to doubt himself that much. But he's not completely sure what story he's in. And in the earlier ones, particularly, and the main ghost in this one is Woolsey, he knew he was in Woolsey's story. He was certainly in Wolf Hall. He is an extension of Woolsey's story. But by this one, it's his story. I mean, his story is now the story. It's taken over from Woolsey's story. Woolsey is just a ghost. And what I love about it and what makes it such a remarkable novel, because it's a novel, it's not a history. So it is itself a story. It has all of these stories interleaved through it. And then Cromwell himself negotiates them, but he's never quite sure which one he's telling. That was how I read it. And so I found it compelling, partly because you're never completely sure which story you're in. And yet this one, unlike the previous two, because with the previous two, you didn't know where chronologically they were going to end. But this one, you know where it's going to end. It's going to end on the day of his death. So you do know which story you're in, and yet you don't. He does have doubt in um, in Wolf Hall. I mean, I think that there's that bit at the beginning of Wolf Hall where he's comparing himself to Thomas More, and he says something to the effect of, he looks at Moore and all he sees is a man full of certainty and he looks at himself and he sees a man whose certainties are falling away from him. And I think in some sense, at least in Wolf Hall, he sort of treats himself as not having the luxury of the kind of certitude and absolute commitment to this fixed sense of self that Moore has. I think in terms of Woolsey's ghost in this, what I like is, that Wolsey's ghost kind of goes absent for a long time in this one. And then kind of Cromwell is wanting Wolsey back. And then, of course, Wolsey comes back at the end. He comes back, but he has nothing to say. I know. (laughs) He's a silent ghost at the end. I think one of the things that was powerful about the way in which uh, Rylance played Cromwell was that his Cromwell seemed to know all the time that the end was coming. Whereas I think that in this one, there are these moments of hubris real hubris, put slightly differently than what you did, but the same point of not understanding the story in which he's in. Because if this is a ghost story, which I think it is, there's that moment where he closes down Thetford Abbey, and that is where all the Duke of Norfolk's ancestors are buried. And that's when Norfolk says to him, basically, I'm going to destroy you because you have desecrated the dead. You've desecrated my dead ancestors, and that is simply not acceptable. And she has Cromwell be quite dismissive about that, as if he doesn't really have to take Norfolk seriously in this respect. But from that moment on, I, th- I think he's, he's done for where Norfolk's concerned. 
if we talk about power, all three of the books are books about power and power in a court of this kind is itself such a mystery because so much of it is just raw, naked, physical coercion. And Cromwell does quite a lot of that. There are scenes where in the King's Council, he physically manhandles people out of the room. He feels for his knife. One of the images is that he lays his knife aside and then he doesn't have it when they come for him at the final council meeting that he doesn't get to because he's dragged off. And yet it's also very hard to pin down for him, for anyone. No one's ever completely sure. The king himself doesn't completely understand how much power he has. No one knows how much power they have. The difference, it seems to me, between this one and the previous two is in the previous two, for Cromwell himself, it's completely clear that his power depends on the king. I mean, it always depends on the king, obviously. And there's a scene that's repeated across all three books, I think. Um, It's certainly remembered in this one, the moment where he's told in an earlier period of Henry's reign, when Cromwell has risen up, but is not as secure as he is in this one, that the king is dead. He's had an accident and he's lain out dead after, I think, a jousting tournament. And Cromwell knows that if the king is dead, he's dead. Cromwell is dead. And so he goes and, and literally batters him back into life. He sort of slams on his heart, jolts him back into life. And Cromwell's own life is hanging by a thread. So in the earlier books, there's much more of a sense of that. Whereas in this one, there's that feeling that he has that, that there is something that might of him that might outlast the king's death. In the earlier books, his power also depends upon his utility. He has to be useful, first to Wolsey, then he extends that, replaces Wolsey. He has to be the indispensable man. But in this book, he has more of his own power. There's a bit towards the end, which again drives Norfolk mad right at the end, where Cromwell defends himself by saying he was acting as any great man would. And Norfolk says, you think of yourself as a great man. But he has an entourage. He he doesn't have the soldiers to put in the field uh, for the pilgrimage of grace that his aristocratic rivals do, but he has some. He himself becomes a marriageable object. You know, there, there are all these swirling plots around who will Cromwell marry, that future of Europe potentially depends not just on who the king will marry, but who Cromwell will marry. So he has more of his own power. And in some ways, that makes him less secure. And in the end, it's going to destroy him. It's almost like a paradox of power, that when when he's just completely dependent, his life could be snuffed out in an instance with the death of the king. But he knows where he stands. And in this one, yeah, there is some hubris to it, but also just some deep irony to it that the more personally powerful he becomes in this kind of dynastic system, the more vulnerable he becomes. There's that wonderful scene in the tower where he's with Margaret Pole, the mother of um, Reginald Pole, and the Pole family you know, have a, a dynastic claim to the crown. And that's what she basically you know, says to him. She said, look, you might have this power now, but you're one person. What follows you? He does actually have a title that he could pass on, but that isn't sufficient in this world. You know, she says to him, you know, like, what's going to come after him, you know, is carrions and dust. So although Cromwell has exercised power by his guile and his cunning and his flexibility, these political skills that Mantel presents him as having learnt in Antwerp and in Italy, actually, it is still a political world in which the hereditary principle 
and these old aristocratic families, even though they have been very much politically curtailed, these things still matter. Now, I think that Mantel's story is also in this book, which I think, again, gives it another level as to what comes after in terms of the fate of England and the religious nature of England. She very much sort of plays through this book with the idea that Thomas More had this ability to exercise influence beyond his death, that Tyndall's death has been put in motion by More, even after More is dead. And in some sense, I think she's kind of saying that actually the England that Cromwell has imagined is actually going to outlast him. His life's work is not actually going to be done with when he does turn to to dust. But the the really compelling thing is that isn't going to be for any of the reasons that Cromwell could understand. We know that because we know what comes in the reign of Elizabeth I. But if he could have known the story after he dies, if he could have known that Mary was going to be on the throne of England and try and turn England back into a Catholic country and that she was going to marry King Philip of Spain, that would look to him like catastrophe. And there is that moment towards the end. So he feels he's done for, you know, famously, the king's fourth marriage to Anna, then Anne of Cleves, is a disaster. It's a sexual disaster. It's good in this book that it's not, in some ways, it's not the central issue. It's part of it. Actually, the central issue is dynastic politics at the European level and the French and so on. But it is a disaster. He thinks he's done for. But there's the point where he, he's made Earl of Essex and he half believes, and that's the point where he becomes dynastic. He half believes it's his rescue, but he also doesn't believe it. It's not just that it's too good to be true. It doesn't quite make sense and it didn't make sense. He's almost given a glimpse of the thing, but it's nothing like the thing that he's up against, which is the dynasticism of Norfolk and all of the others. He's given these ersatz versions of the thing that he's up against, but that's not where his power lies. His power never lied in being the Earl of Essex. His power lied in being Thomas Cromwell. It did, but I mean, I think she makes it pretty clear that he enjoys being the, the Earl of um, Essex. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who wouldn't? <laughs> well, who wouldn't in those days? And, you know, he's also acquiring massive amounts of like land and property through all this. And it's an interesting question where Mantel might think that the line is drawn between what he does understand and and what he is blind to. And I think she's telling both of those stories about him. I think you might argue that he understands much better in this novel the consequences of the shifting geopolitics of Europe. So if you told the story you know, geopolitically about his fall, first of all, the necessity of the Cleves marriage comes about in the space in which the emperor and the, the king of France have repaired relations between them and then things change again when that relationship comes apart again and she presents him as understanding those geopolitical currents extremely well. I think she presents him as less well understanding what the reaction to his rise is amongst the old aristocratic families. Now in part I think that's because he thinks that the world has changed or England has has changed that new families came now. New families also came and new families fell, like the the Berlins and the Seymours have their moment. But he thinks where the Poles and the Courtenays are concerned, who are the you know the biggest immediate threats to Henry himself, that he's on top, if you like, of that political problem. But it really is Norfolk and Norfolk's 
enduring ability to exercise influence that I think that she portrays him as missing. But those two things intersect in a way because, yes, he does. He absolutely, he's the master of European high politics and he's not just the master of what goes on inside the court of Henry VIII, but how it relates to other courts around Europe and other princes. But there is a part of it, however well he understands it, that he cannot control. And Henry does quite often remind him that what goes on between princes is not something that he can, Cromwell can control. And he knows that. But the thing that gets him is that Norfolk gets to the King of France. There is a sort of level of high dynastic European politics, which somehow either he is blind to it because he's preoccupied with what's going on in England, or he just doesn't have the the grip to take control of it. But that is the thing that gets him in the end. It, it's the French demanding Cromwell's fall that produces Cromwell's fall, and they are egged on in that by Norfolk. And like you, I don't think... Cromwell at any level fails to understand it in this book, but it's out of his grip. It's out of his reach. And then that cuts across this so much in this book, so much we could talk about the really interesting interplay between life in Calais and life in England and, and the back and forth, the little bit of England that is in France, that extension where there is a deep sense that it might be profoundly corrupt, um, very, very dangerous, that the dangers to Cromwell might come from there. And he sort of can control Calais, uh, or he tries to, but he can't control France. Yeah, I think that there is um, a thread that's run through all the novels, which I think she does brilliantly, which is what is the relevance of England at any point in the story to what is going on in the continent? And one thing that she presents, I think quite correctly, you know, like Woolsey as having done, is having elevated English influence from this sort of backwater where nobody can really get to grips with the language and don't see any reason why they should. It's this sort of wet and insular little island. And Wolsey's turned it into something that for a moment matters. And then with Wolsey's fall and with the crisis over Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon and the demand for the annulment that the Pope and the Emperor aren't willing to give... Cromwell wants to assert this as a moment that England can be some different kind of country. But actually, this is an incredibly difficult thing in geopolitical terms that Cromwell is trying to pull off. It's one thing to say, as he writes in the Act of Appeals, that this England is an empire, but it's an entirely other other matter to be able to insulate English affairs, as you say, from what's going on in the court in France or in the um, in the Emperor's court. And Cromwell's pursuit of the Cleves marriage is an attempt to try to change England's position by an alliance with this German principality. But at the same time, Henry himself is very much undermining what Cromwell might hope to do on that front, because Henry doesn't want to align himself with outright Protestants. And so what is Cromwell's position in this? Is he trying to serve, if you like, Henry's England? Or is he trying to serve his idea of England, which is a considerably more Protestant than um, than what Henry's is and bringing these influences, because it isn't just then what's happening politically in France, but it's what's happening religiously in Switzerland, in Zurich in particular, that matter to him. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And it is true that consistently in this book, the sense that he does have of his possible legacy is if 
whatever happens to him after his death, the Bible can be read in English. That's what he falls back on. Yeah, and you can see the pattern that runs through because Moore wants to stop that. He wants to stop the Bible in English and he carries on trying to do that after his death because he's already given instructions that Tyndall needs to be murdered to stop the Bible coming back into England from Antwerp. Then Cromwell takes up Tyndall's Bible in persuading Henry that it needs to go into every church in the country. And he is then hoping that that is going to be his legacy after his death, not just that it's Cromwell executing Tyndall's legacy after his, that Moore was executing a desire to stop after his death. So a sense of like what can be passed on, what can still be stopped, what can be ordered in some sense beyond the grave runs through the whole of the novel. One more thing about power. I'm probably not alone in this. Reading the denouement of this book, Cromwell's Fool, and it does happen. It's choreographed around a meeting of the King's Council. Um, People have to be tipped off about what's going to happen. Cromwell suddenly, but too late, recognises that he's about to be carted off by physical force. But it's this weird mixture of thuggish, brutish, this most basic form of politics. It is about who can physically drag whom out of the room. And yet it's rule-bound. The council has its rules. This is a committee. It reminded me of the scene at the end of Armando Iannucci's film, The Death of Stalin, when they finally come for Beria and they have to do it at the meeting of the Central Committee. Iannucci turns it into a joke (laughs) that, on the one hand, people's lives are at stake. Soldiers are going to have to come in with guns. They're going to have to kill this person as best they can. And the people with the guns are the ones who are going to win. And yet they still have to play by the rules. They kind of have to go through the committee. There are votes and things like that. And it's a cliche and not true that the court of Henry VIII and the court of Stalin have anything in common. But there is that weird feeling in this book. And one of the things I loved about it, because power is deeply mysterious and I don't claim to understand it. That strange combination of brute force always present the whole time. There's always that feeling that you need to be sure that you can kill the people who want to kill you before they kill you. And this elaborate dance of procedure, not just courtly procedure, but bureaucratic procedure, because Cromwell is creating the the bureaucratic state. His fall is in keeping with his rise. He is dragged off and ultimately killed on his way to a committee meeting. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right in that, and it's marvellously done. The other thing I would say, and this is a thread I think that's set up in in Wolf Hall, really, in a conversation that Cromwell has with his son, um, Gregory, is the question about whether you can then tell a story about the exercise of power and the ways in which power is exercised that faces these horrible, brutal truths about it, or whether there is always this impulse to try and find a more imaginative, in some sense, almost a more mythical story about it. So at the end of, of Wolf Hall, when he's talking to his son, he talks about the possibility of telling a story of, of England, which doesn't involve Arthur and Merlin, that basically takes all the, well, the more mythical ways and more legendary ways of, of telling stories about power out of it. And Gregory tells him that he doesn't think that that's possible. And in some sense, you might say, well, that's what Cromwell is trying to do, is to tell a story of how England can be remade by power that sort of faces those truths about the destructive nature of power. And Cromwell at the end of of Wolf Hall kind of has to sort of come around to the idea that maybe 
the truth about power can't be faced and that you can't actually write English history without taking um, Arthur and Merlin out of it. And then there's a conversation in this one where kind of Merlin's prophecies, I think it is, reappear and the king and Henry engage in a not entirely dissimilar conversation. And so it's both the actual exercise of power has to have all these and the moment it's exercised, performances around it. But then it's also a question of like what stories are told about it afterwards in ways that can make it seem like more palatable, more inevitable. Do you think it's possible to say that this book is too modern? So when I was reading it, I'm aware, I think, that part of the reason that I love it is that it does have this modern sensibility in it. It's not just that Cromwell himself feels like a figure that we might meet in 21st century life, but that everyone, even the even the mystics, even the aristocrats, even Princess Mary, even the king, they have these moments of irony and self-awareness. That everyone seems to be kind of a little bit psychologically self-conscious. And I'm not a historian of this period. I don't know that much about it. I have this suspicion that it was nothing like that. It may have been like that, but I have this feeling that maybe it was a much more... Um, remote time from us. This period is called the early modern period, but it's right at the beginning of the early modern period. I think it's the barely modern period. It genuinely was haunted by ghosts. This is the age of magic. This is not the decline of magic, as Keith Thomas famously called it. I think we're still in the age of magic, and yet it's it is so modern. And there's another theme that runs through it to relate it to power. Touched on in this book, there are almost jokes about Machiavelli and the Prince. So it's called the Mirror and the Light. Mirror partly refers to these books, mirror of princes' books, books that show princes in a particular light to themselves so that they can see what it is to be a prince. And Machiavelli has written a book previous to this period, but by barely a generation, that is subverting that genre. And you can make the same argument about that book, about Machiavelli's The Prince. We read it, we tend to read it as a modern book an early modern book, but it also comes from a completely different world. It actually doesn't come from the world of the modern state. To write about the prince is not to write about the sovereign of a modern state. So I was never sure with this. It's not really a criticism. I don't want to criticise this book because I love it too much. But I had my doubts as I was reading it that maybe um, I had been seduced by a kind of psychological modernity to describe a world that is probably more remote than it feels here. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I remember when I was watching the BBC's Wolf Hall and simultaneously marvelling at Mark Rylance's performance and being deeply moved by it, and at the same time thinking, I can't believe that Cromwell was actually anything like this at all. And that didn't take away from his performance to me. It's just that I couldn't really believe there was somebody who was Thomas Cromwell, who carried around that kind of sadness that so permeated, in some sense, even more so than Mantell's Cromwell. On the other hand, I think that it is a crucial moment in English and subsequently British history because of the consequences it has for the the British state. This is the moment in which England is, is refounded as recognisably the beginning of the country in which we live in. That doesn't mean that massive amounts have, of course, changed since. But in some sense, this is a story of a country's beginnings and each sort of generation is going to go back to that and tell the story 
in ways that help it understand the country's history. And I think regardless of the relationship between Mantel's Cromwell and the actual Cromwell, this is a really important story, the way that she has told it for us to read in this country in the 21st century. So in some sense, to me at least, whether it's taking sort of psychological preoccupations from our time and reading them back where that they weren't there, it doesn't really matter. There is something that is important to understand about that part of English history that Mantel has been able to articulate. So I don't know if they're going to make a TV version of this. If they do, so the person who plays Beria in the Death of Stalin is Simon Russell Beale, and I would like to see him play Cromwell in this one. The age might not be right, but not because I want him to play him like Beria at all, but because I want him to play him like he plays Shakespearean characters. But I did think about his performance as Beria because it's partly about cruelty, torture, death, you know, being the agent of not just of death on a large scale of executions, but of fairly grisly deaths as well. I did wonder again with this one, I mean, Cromwell, in this book, he's a bit squeamish. He's very sensitive to suffering, including his own, but other people's too, more, I think, than in the previous two books. And I just wondered about that as well. Hilary Mantel is probably right that there's no reason to think that the kind of life he led and the kind of power he exercised meant that he was a cruel man. He just was a man of his time. And yet that was another point where I felt it had this kind of modern sensibility. It made him a much more attractive figure, a scene that is absolutely central to the whole narrative arc of this book is his memory of, as a child, of seeing a burning, being drawn almost unwittingly to witness the most horrific thing you can witness. And then he witnesses another one in this book and he experiences it in somewhat similar ways. Who knows? I mean, we have no idea what anyone thinks in the time we lived, never mind, all those centuries ago. But I just, again, had moments where I just thought, is he too sensitive? He's not Beria, obviously, and he's not a sadist. He's not a monster. Beria was a sadist and a monster. But Cromwell is really, he is quite sensitive in this book for a man who did what he did. I think it's somewhat balanced, though, by the attitude that he takes, not just in this book, but in the previous book to Anne Boleyn. Obviously, Anne is one of the ghosts that appear, and so are the, the five men whom he had killed as a pretext for the false charges against Anne. But I think it doesn't really bother him what he's done. He thinks it's necessary. He can rationalise it to himself without a great deal of searching of his conscience as what was politically necessary. So is he a man who thinks in politics that the ends do justify the means, even whilst he might understand that pursuing both the ends and the means have unintended consequences, then I think that that is who she portrays where that's concerned. Now, that isn't to say there aren't some rather beautiful passages about what happens when the men in particular come back, but does Tom Cromwell ever regret what he did to them? I don't think that he does. He is also in this book the man who can talk to women in the sense that he's he's a go-between, not just between Henry and his wives, but there are all sorts of relationships with women in this book where he is also, I mean, he's brusque sometimes, but he's sensitive at other times. Hilary Mantel has created a fictional daughter for him from Antwerp who becomes 
very important. He also sometimes comes across as quite modern there. But it's also, I think it's wonderful because it's part of this interleaving. And like I said earlier on, he himself becomes a marriageable prospect. And there are these complicated dances that he's engaged in. He is not just trying to serve the interests of the king's body, although that is his primary role. He is playing all these different bodies off against each other. And some of it is pretty physical and sexual and bawdy, to use that old-fashioned word. Um, and the relations with the queens are a big part of his story. One bit, I mean, there are so many bits of this book, but stay with my mind. I'm just going to mention one towards the end, which kind of sums up some of these things that we've been talking about. I hope I get it right in spirit. He's taken to the tower and he's housed. You know, the tower is not just this terrible place. It's also where queens are housed before their marriages. There are some very elegant apartments. He's had them all furnished. You know, he's the furnisher of the tower, as well as the agent of people's death in the tower, and ultimately his own death takes him to the tower. And he's put up in one of these comfortable apartments, and he sees on the wall that there are these paintings of queens. And he's changed the eyes of one of the queens from, I think, blue to green or green to blue, as Henry changes his queens. And he thinks, I did that. You know, I'm the man who, as part of my job, I changed the colors of the eyes in the courtly apartments in the tower because the queens keep changing and now I'm in that apartment I'm in the room where I change the color of the queen's eyes and it's going to be my death because I think he's first prepared those rooms hasn't he for Anne's coronation Mm. where his memory about Anne is perhaps a little bit more generous than it is on other occasions but there is something that's wonderful in the way in which the range of political activities that are required of him go from changing the colour of the the Queen's eyes in these paintings to working out how to put down rebellions in the Midlands and the um, north of England to understanding what's going on um, in the French court to trying to understand how Bibles can be got out of Antwerp to protect himself and those more radical Protestants who were reading these English Bibles, including actually um, his mother-in-law, and that he has to keep that part of who he is from the king even whilst he is doing the king's bidding in all these other ways there's one little phrase that i like very much which i think comes from chaucer actually that he remembers near the beginning of the novel where he says the life's so short the craft's so long to learn and i think that that sums it up wonderfully the nature of the differences in time that run through the human body and human mind of thomas cromwell that is fated to meet death and and yet all these endless political capabilities that have to be required to have any chance of surviving from month to month, let alone to have any kind of long political life. The other thing that comes through, it's a truism of all political life. And it's one of the qualities that people tend to forget when they try and think of what makes a successful political figure and political career. Is it guile? Is it cunning? Is it intelligence? Is it morality? Is it immorality? It's also stamina. I mean, you have to be able to put in the hours, keep going, Cromwell's stamina comes through in this, just the ability to do all of those things. I mean, it occasionally takes your breath away. You think he's in the middle of some epic struggle, but he's also you know, choosing the wallpaper for the next abbey that he's about to take into his possession. And it is also true at the end, he gets sick. His Italian life catches up with him because his Italian fever comes back, which he's never quite shaken off. It nearly kills him and it weakens him at a crucial moment. And Cromwell without physical stamina is nothing. He doesn't just depend upon the king's body, he depends upon his own body. And when he gets sick, 
even though he survives the illness, he doesn't survive the consequences of the illness. And that seems to me to be a deep truth about politics too. Yeah, and I think that that goes back as well to you know his position and what Margaret Pohl warned him about in the Tower. There is only him. Although he has these allies, the only way that Thomas Cromwell can politically survive and, and therefore stay alive is if hour by hour he's being Thomas Cromwell. And that part of the novel where he has the flu is a real turning point in terms of, of his downfall. Now, it's not that there aren't all these other things in place that are leading in that direction, but he is not able to put up the kind of defence against those forces that a well Thomas Cromwell would have been able to do. It goes without saying that we highly recommend all three volumes of the Hilary Mantel Thomas Cromwell trilogy. And if you'd like to get them in book form, do please order from Waterstones or your local independent bookseller. We want there to be bookshops when we come out of lockdown. Next week, I'm excited to say we're going to be talking to Nate Silver from 538 about some of the data behind the pandemic and the politics of the pandemic. And in our regular slot, we're going to be catching up with all the things that have been going on in British politics. There's a lot to talk about. My name is David Brunsman, and we've been talking politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.